And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's the first full week of February, and um, we're getting things kind of kicked off underway. Of course, last week, we actually started February, and generally in the first couple of days of the month, you get you know a bit of buying from institutions, that type of stuff, and that's kind of what we saw last week. Markets did pretty well, of course, just to kind of recap from last week. Markets sold off on Wednesday following the FOMC announcement, and kind of the disappointment that the Fed might take a little longer to actually cut rates and expected. And that's really pretty much because they knew what the employment report was gonna be on Friday, which surprised everybody. You had a four standard deviation beat on the estimates on Friday in terms of employment. Big number, over 330,000 people hired. Um, just amazing to how strong the economy is, at least on the headline. Now, if you look underneath the surface, it was almost entirely seasonal adjustments. And, and this is something that happens every January. We get these big seasonal adjustments. But there were some really interesting anomalies that were going on inside the data. For, in, for instance, one of the things that we track fairly carefully is full-time employment relative to the working age population. And that has been declining rather sharply here over the last few months. And, and, and the reason that full-time employment is a better measure of economic activity and really economic strength is because, well, you know, a full-time job gives you benefits, it gives you health care, it gives you uh, higher wages on average than part-time work, and that allows people to support their families, to go out and buy things, and, you know, that's, so full-time employment is very important. And what was interesting is, is that we actually did see an uptick in full-time employment relative to the working age population on Friday. Now, you would think that was good news, but it really wasn't because there was a adjustment to the population taking out almost uh, over 400 million people in the population disappeared in January. <laughs> so, you know, aliens, I'm not sure what happened, but on a very rare occasion going back through history, we have these very big negative adjustments to the population. And so, the only reason that full-time employment as a percentage of the population had an uptick was because we removed 400 million people from the population. Um, Solve the same thing in wages, right? Wages ticked up only because the number of hours worked dropped rather sharply on Friday. So people are working less and if they get paid the same, the way that we calculate data, if I make a dollar and I'm working 40 hours a week, and now all of a sudden I'm making a dollar, but we're only working 35 hours a week. Well, that means I'm making more money, right? <laughs> so that means wages go up, even though I'm not bringing home any more money to spend. So those were the kind of anomalies that we're talking about in this data. So once you really kind of dig below that surface of that headline number, it wasn't nearly as strong of an employment report as you know you would think it was but nonetheless the fed really doesn't look at that as much as the actual overall number and so that really pushed out these inflation uh, these uh, interest rate cut expectations uh you know further into the year now jerome powell out on sunday talking about there's really 
Um, no reason to cut rates in March either. Um, too much data still out there right now. And really, the data is way too strong at this point to be cutting rates. You know, if you're the Federal Reserve and you're worried about inflation, well, you know, these strong employment numbers and, you know, a 4% expected growth rate in the economy in the first quarter of this year, those type of things are certainly more inflationary than they are deflationary. And I don't want to be cutting rates into that type of environment. So again, will the Fed cut rates this year? Yeah, they are going to cut rates this year. But again, it's this battle between the markets and the Federal Reserve as to when they cut rates and by how much. And again, when you look underneath the surface, a lot of these economic reports that we're getting, which seem strong, again, you know, you can't, you, you can't deny 330,000 people, you know, hired in January. You can't deny that. I mean, that's, that's what the numbers say, right? That's what the market reads. But underneath that, when you really kind of open the hood, look at the internals, not nearly as strong as it looks. But again, you know, this is the important thing about investing, and, and this is what you need to know before the bell this morning. The markets don't care as much about the internals of these economic reports that we get on a regular basis that you kind of would expect. And the markets aren't doing the analysis of saying, oh, well, look, you know, uh, 335,000 people were employed on, on, in January, according to Friday's employment report, but we look underneath the surface, really wasn't that strong. Markets really don't look at that. They just look at that kind of headline number of, of this data and then kind of move on with life. And that's why markets continue to do a lot better. This economic data has been improving much stronger than, at least on the headline, uh, has been improving much better than what the vast majority of people think, right? I and mean, if you start if you start polling people out in, in the world saying, well, how's your life? It's like, well, it's terrible. I can barely make ends meet. But again, the markets are looking at these overall economic numbers that are coming in and they're still good. So as an investor, we have to be looking at what the data is and then assuming how the market is going to interpret that data. And the market is still very bullish here. Um, Again, on Wednesday, we did have the market sell off, came down, touched the 20-day moving average, uh, retested that support. We talked about needing a bit of a pullback. That happened on Friday. Now, unfortunately, uh, when you're in a really strong bullish stampede like we're in now and have been in really since uh, November the 1st of last year, this very long stampede in the market is not uncommon. It's not unusual, as we've talked about before. But that also means that pullbacks, consolidations, they're very shallow, they're very light. And so when you get those opportunities to invest, you know, you kind of have to take them pretty quick because otherwise the market kind of gets away from you. Now, markets are getting rather extended here once again. Again, you know, we're still holding up this buy signal. We were close to triggering it. This rally following the FOMC meeting has, has kept that uh, signal from actually triggering. Uh, again, we were really close. We're still sitting on that trigger line. I mean, it's, it's very close. So again, wouldn't take much uh, for the market to turn over here and give us a bit of a correction. Now, as we enter the month of February, February tends to be one of the weaker months of the year. And after a very strong January, so we had a very strong January rally following kind of a weak start, um, but that rally was really strong. So generally when you have a very strong January rally, the month of February tends to bring out a negative rate of return. So uh, again, a market that's down one, 2% this month would not be surprising at all. Again, that's not a lot. We're gonna come down, maybe test 4,800-ish, somewhere around there, um, which is the 20-day moving average, potentially the 4,700 level. Uh, if we actually get into a little bit more uh, strong selling or, and profit taking as possible, 
So again, some type of correction in the month of February is very likely. Again, doesn't mean it has to happen. You know, we've kind of been expecting this market to correct here for a little bit because they are very extended, very, remain very overbought on multiple levels. So again, a correction is coming. It's just always the timing that's hard. So again, just understand that when we enter the month of February, that does tend to be a bit of a weaker month. And so if you've been taking on a lot of equity risk, you know, we kind of talked about this recently, you know, take a little bit of profits, rebalance. It doesn't mean go to cash. <laughs> it just means maybe rebalance some risk in your portfolio. If you've got positions with really big gains, kind of trim something back to target weights, those type of things. Because again, very likely sometime this month, we're going to get some type of corrective action. Could either be just a consolidation where markets just stop going anywhere for a while, uh, kind of work off some of that overbought condition, or you actually do get a, a little bit of a correction, a, a two to three to 5% correction would not be surprising. Very common for every given year. So again, something will happen either soon or later, but it is going to happen at some point and give you a better entry point uh, for putting capital to work. All right, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, uh, talking a little bit about an article I wrote on Friday um, about retirees, and they're taking on a lot more equity risk very late in life. And is that a wise thing to do? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, a couple things. Um, so this weekend, uh, there's, it's interesting, you know, there's a, and I'm going to get to this article about um, retirees and uh, investment risk. I just, you know, kind of over the weekend, my wife and I um, went to Costco and, you know, it, it's amazing because you hear about, as I said earlier, you kind of hear all these stories and, uh, you know, political polls. You know, they're, you know, how do you know, how do you feel about the economy? It's terrible. You know, it, you know, I, you know, it's everything's too expensive and, you know, I can't make ends meet. And you go to Costco <laughs> and it's packed. I mean, front to back. I mean, there's just a, a massive crowd of people in Costco, which is why we've owned the stock. And I mean, and I'm sitting there, you know, looking at there going, OK, everybody here's paying, a, you know, 120 bucks a head for a membership plus shopping. So, um, you know, and again, we've owned the stock for a very long time and we're probably going to continue to own it for a very long time. But from a proxy of the economy and, and look, I live in Houston, so maybe I'm in an outlier. I'm just saying, but as a proxy of the economy, um, economy seems to be doing just fine at this point. I know lots of concerns about, you know, recession. We've got recessionary indicators left and right, and, we, and those are absolutely true facts. But it certainly doesn't seem like at this point that, you know, people are, are economically stressed yet. I'm not saying they won't be. I'm just, it's just kind of anecdotal from the, that standpoint. But, you know, this kind of just goes along with a, a lot of, you know, kind of the conundrum that we have in the markets overall right now, which is this this very strange kind of divide between the haves and the have-nots. And there are certainly a lot of financial concerns for a vast majority of Americans who are having trouble making ends meet. 
inflation is a real problem. You know, the cost of their goods and services that they use are, are, are disproportionately high. And then there's a whole other chunk of the economy that is doing okay and weathering the storm pretty well. Again, construction of new homes, those type of things still going on. Um, you know, we, we take a look at, and I've got an article coming out on Friday about homes and housing, but the, we build a composite index of total housing activity, which is near its highest level in years. So again, uh, kind of this bifurcation um, in the economy, depending on what side you're looking at. So it's just, it's just kind of an interesting, you know, and, and like I said, it's interesting only from the standpoint that the markets are doing very well. Corporate profits are expected to increase by 12.5% this year. And yet we've had high interest rates, we've had high inflation, and those corporate profits just kind of keep rolling in. Now, mind you, mind you, a vast portion of those corporate profits come from seven companies. But... Nonetheless, corporate profits are, are growing. And so what the, you know, so even though there's been inflation, corporations have been able to pass that inflation on to the consumers through higher prices. And consumers so far have weathered that to a degree. Now again, you know, look, you, you can don't start sending me a bunch of reports about you know, inflation and people having trouble making ends meet. Now, I, I know all that, right? And that's what I'm saying. There's this big bifurcation in the economy between the haves and the have-nots. And that, that has a lot to do with the angst in the upcoming election. You know, you take a look at presidential poll ratings, those type of things, you know, that tells you there's some real stress in the economy, but yet it doesn't show up in the actual economic data. And, th and this is... You know, this is the challenging part as an investor is, you know, separating those out. It's very easy. And I was having this conversation on on uh, Saturday with Adam. You know, it's very easy to kind of get wrapped up into a lot of these very negative economic reports. And it's easy to parse out some of this economic data. Like I was saying a second ago, take a look at the employment report. Not nearly as strong as what the headline says. But again, the market doesn't care about that. So as investors, we have to kind of look past what we think and look at data as to how the market's and how, how's the market taking it and, and what's the market doing with that and what's the outlook for the market from here. And, and right now, you know, it, it's, it's good. Look, um, I was tweeting out this morning as an example about earnings because we've now got a big chunk of earnings in. We've got almost all of the big mega, you know, the kind of the magnificent seven or have reported, except for NVIDIA, and they report later on in the month. Um, but you take a look at, you know, profit margins. You take a look at uh, earnings as an example. And earnings have been doing very well. And, and when you take a look at, you know, these earnings and, you know, kind of where they're coming from. A big chunk of it's coming from corporate share buybacks. Uh, you know, Meta, as an example, announced on Friday, 50 billion share buyback. And that helps boost earnings, right? That makes those earnings, uh, earnings and margins look a whole lot better. And so, you know, we talked about coming into this earnings season, as an example. And we said that earnings have been lowered by $8 a share in just two months, 
as we wrapped up 2023, going into the fourth quarter earnings period, we lowered earnings per share by $8 in two months. But that was already down sharply from where we were when we first started looking at 2024 estimates. We had lowered those estimates by about $20 a share to get into earnings season. So a very big decline in earnings. And so when you, do, when you lower earnings like that, and then you go into earnings season, you get this kind of stat. 54% of companies have beat earnings estimates by one standard deviation. This is significantly higher than the average of 48%. Only 10% of companies have missed estimates by greater than one standard deviation, which is less than the average of 13%. So, you know, as we've talked about before, when, you know, you lower estimates, you lower estimates, you lower estimates before earnings season starts, you're going to get a lot of companies that beat, right? And we lowered them a lot coming into this earnings season. So we're getting a record number of beats. Now, again, look, nobody cares about that. See, we don't care about where the bar was set previously because, again, if we left the bar where it was initially, all these companies would have missed. The beat rate would be zero because nobody's even where it, nobody's even close, including Meta, to what the estimates were originally. But see, we lower them, we lower them, we lower them, lower them, we beat them, and then we drive a stock up 20% on these lowered estimates. It was already at a record high. So this is the game we play. But that, see, none of that matters. It doesn't matter that these companies are beating much lowered estimates. All that matters is they're beating them, and that's the way the market looks at it. Oh, the market, the, the company beat it, so we need to own the stock because they're doing great. But again, as investors, we can certainly look at what's happening underneath the surface and go, well, that beat really wasn't that big of a beat. But it doesn't matter. Markets are rewarding it for what it is, and so we've got to participate. That's the challenge. And, but the reason I'm telling you all this is to understand what's happening in the market. This, that this is a function of what we've been doing over the last decade, in particular, which is this massive surge in corporate buybacks, which are inflating earnings per share. They contribute a lot of buying power to the market, which drives the markets higher. 40% of the return of the market since 2010 has come from buybacks alone. In a lot of cases, buybacks have been a, a, a almost entirely the majority of the net buying of equities in the markets. It's a very big impact. And this is something that really accelerated following 2010. Combine that with years of quantitative easing, zero interest rates, governmental monetary interventions, government fiscal interventions, it's been phenomenal. And this has led to a very extended long period of outsized returns that probably wouldn't have existed otherwise. Just an example, if you strip out just buybacks, the market would be trading closer to 3000 not 5000 Again, still much better than the 666 low that we put in in December of 2009. You would have certainly made money over the last 13 years, absolutely. But it would have been not nearly 
as much as what the markets have been returning on the last several years. And that's kind of the key point of what we'll talk about when we come back, because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, Danny and Richard spend a lot of time talking about retirement, retirement planning, and kind of the thesis has been for a long time that as you move closer to retirement, you shift more into, into bonds, you reduce your equity risk, et cetera. That's the thesis, right? And that's the theory. And in reality, it makes a lot of sense because as I'm getting further into retirement, I want to take less risk because I can't really afford a 50% drawdown in my assets because I won't be able to survive my retirement. But that's not what people have been doing. And there's some very interesting reasons why that's the case. And, and this was the subject of our article that we wrote on Friday. And the question then becomes is, is that, you know, why are, why are investors doing what they're doing and is it a wise thing? But again, we'll, we'll kind of go through the stats. It was some, an interesting survey out um, just recently asking people later in life, you know, what are you doing with your money? Information kind of surprised me, and so which led me to write the article. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Be sure you're by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure you subscribe for our latest newsletter. Our daily market commentary is out this morning. And make sure and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We certainly appreciate it. We'll be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues this valentine's day promise you'll respect your lover's credit communicate about your money and share together our first candid coffee for 2024. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Saturday, February 24th, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratcliffe will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Candid Coffee with Ratcliffe and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, again, talking a little bit about, you know, the markets and how we got here. And, again, there was this kind of very interesting survey that was out in Bloomberg uh, just recently. And they asked people, you know, as they're getting older, what are you doing with your money? I'll just read to you from the from the survey real quick. Sorry, my nose is itching this morning. What's the old saying? If your nose itches, somebody's come to visit. Yeah, I don't like people, so don't come visit. So my nose will come stop itching. My doorbell rings. First thing to do is gun comes out, right? <laughs> exactly. What are you doing at my house? <laughs> you know, Rich is right. I am getting a lot like Clint Eastwood. Get off my lawn! <laughs> I'm just getting old and cranky. All right, from the Bloomberg survey, retirement savers want more stocks in their portfolios as a hedge against inflation. Potentially offering a long-term tailwind for equities as societies age, according to the latest Bloomberg Markets Live Pulse survey. 
Almost half of the 252 respondents said they were putting more funds into stocks as a response to rising prices, far eclipsing the 6% who said they'd be adding traditional inflation hedges like gold. Now, it's interesting. Um, Gold's been a very long-term underperformer um, since 2009 uh, relative to stocks. So not surprising. Again, you know, we have a kind of a recency bias that, you know, we see what's working and then we kind of invest in that. And, you know, that kind of kind of drives our decisions. We have this very short term recency bias that we tend to follow along with. And so this chart from the survey showed that 46 percent said they're going to add more to stocks, 29% are going to adjust for inflation in some other way, uh, 19% said they're not going to do anything, and 6% said they're adding to gold. Now, what's interesting is, is that while the respondents said that they were buying stocks as a hedge against inflation, which you know may be part of the answer, the reality is, is that it's really been not a function of inflation, but it's been a surging bull market over the last 14 years that's driving that decision more than anything else the same psychology really kind of permeated into the next question that was asked which is where do you think you know get, kind of given real world experience where do you, what do you think markets are going to do or, or assets are going to do over the next few years and so it wasn't surprising that after what we've seen over the last you know uh 14 years in particular that Individuals said, well, well, 33% of them said how you know, it'll be higher stock prices. Another 33% said higher real estate prices. 25% said bonds, because bonds did great for a decade. And then 8% was in something else. So again, not surprising. It's all psychology. Because this is what we've been looking at over the last decade now, and we've talked about this before, I've written some articles on it. But if you look back at returns of the markets going back to 1900, and you look at returns over various time spans, so 1928 through 2023, the market return on average is about 8.5%. Now, that's exactly what you would expect over the very long term. Why? The economy grows at about 6% on average. You have 2% inflation, 2% dividend yield. Um, Sorry, 4% dividend yield. So you subtract that inflation, you get about 8%. So that's been the long-term averages. And so the market's going to grow at about what the economy grows at over time. 1928 to 1999, we did a little bit better because you strip out a 20-year bear market. 1973 through... 2023 did a bit less because you're going to start right in the middle of a, of a big bear market in 1974. So and then you get the, the bear market from 2000 to 2015 in there. So returns were a little bit less, but still right around 8%. So no matter how you kind of break up those long-term returns going through the end of last year, you get around 8%-ish. But note that once we passed the financial crisis – returns have risen by four percentage points on average. In other words, the market has been returning roughly 33% more on average over the last 14 years than they have in the previous 100, give or take.
And so that is why investors are going, well, where are you going to put your money for retirement? I'm just going to put it in the stock market. I'm getting 8, you know, 8, 10% a year. And it's not surprising. Kind of exactly what you would expect. Again, recency bias. But, you know, again, when we take a look at this, you know, and you start asking a couple of reasons, like why are you taking so much risk in the market at your age? There's also a big shortfall. We talked about this earlier between the haves and the have-nots, right? So um, survey was some, from CNBC had come out recently and, and kind of dovetailed right into this, which was that the average Americans feel they need about $1.3 million to retire comfortably from the survey. When it comes to how much they need to retire comfortably, Americans have magic number in mind, 1.27 million. Kind of an odd number, but okay. This was from Northwestern Mutual. The survey found that respondents in their 50s expect to need that need the most when they retire with about 1.5 million. For those in their 60s and 70s, they are closer to retirement, um, who are close to or in retirement. Uh, those expectations are about a million. So this is how much people think they need for retirement, right? So in the 20s, right, they think they need 1.2 million. They have about 35,000 saved. In their 50s, they need 1.6 million. They have about 110,000 saved. So what they're hoping for here is that the stock market is going to do the heavy lifting of their savings. I'm going to somehow in my 50s take 110,000 and grow it to 1.6 million. This is why people are taking on so much speculative risk. And, you know, it's not just that. I mean, the, the problem, uh, again, is, is the fact that they've just undersaved grossly for retirement. And, and the problem with that data is that, again, they're nowhere close to those savings levels. Um, a survey by Clever Real Estate polled 1,000 Gen Xers that were born between 1965 and 1980 to find out how they fare regarding personal finances and their road to retirement. 56% of Gen Xers said they have less than $100,000 saved for retirement. 22% said they have not yet saved a single cent for retirement. But yet, they're going to need millions of dollars in retirement. So again, what they're hoping for is that this market is going to continue indefinitely. And so the market's been doing great for 13, 14 years now. So why not just live my life for today, right? And and uh, tomorrow will take care of itself because I can just throw a few bucks into the markets and it'll do all the work for me. So this is how we get this kind of YOLO attitude. Here's the problem, though, is sustainability. If we take a look back since 2009, how did we get those four percentage additional points of return? Well, those four percentage points of return came from $43 trillion worth of monetary and fiscal interventions. HAMP, HARP, TARP, bailouts, QE, zero interest rates, stimulus checks, so forth and so on. And that's been driving a lot of this market. It's been driving spending. You know, those stimulus checks went straight to households. And it's pretty fascinating when you take a look at a company like Meta, who just reported $40 billion in revenue, right? 
It's amazing how much money is getting spent on advertising and social media. It's like, where do people, and, and you know, where's all this money come from? Well, nobody's saving anything, right? They're spending everything. They're online scrolling social media and going, oh, I want that click. I want that click. Oh, that looks cool. I'll buy that. And because it just links to a debit card, right? There's no physical expenditure of cash. It's just, I can sit on my couch and I can spend money all day long. And this is why nobody has any money saved up, right? They're not saving any money. You know, there's one advantage of, of retail shopping. You remember the back in the old days when you had to get in the car and go to the mall and go shopping? It was a lot of trouble. <laughs> and you had to lug all that stuff around with you. So, you know, that was a whole nother issue. But it's so much easier just to sit in your house and spend money online. You know, this is one of the great innovations. You know, before we had, you know, kind of online shopping on social media, you had people sitting at home and watching television and the QVC network, and they were just dialing up an 800 number from home and ordering stuff online. And, of course, we hear all the stories about how, you know, somebody's grandma had, you know, run up thousands upon dollars of, of expenditures on the QVC network because she's sitting at home ringing up QVC, buying stuff, and she didn't really know what she's buying, right? But we've gotten into this very easy society of spending money, and so we're not saving any money, and now we're becoming more dependent on that. But the market is being driven by that as well, all that revenue. And the question is sustainability. And so when we come back, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pick up on the other side of the story about market cycles and, and valuations and what happens potentially next and potentially at the worst time for retirees. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So I just want to kind of wrap up our conversation on, um, you know, this issue of retirees taking on a lot more stock risk in their portfolio. And look, I understand it. Right, 14 years of a rip and bull market, 4% above average annualized returns. Why wouldn't you just pile all your money into the stock market? That certainly seems to be the smart thing to do, and it certainly works so far. But what's the risk? Well, the risk is, is that we can't spend another $43 trillion over the course of the next decade to continue to support market returns. And more importantly, and I want to show you this chart. This is a chart I showed in our economic summit um, that we had Saturday before last. If you go look back in history, there are distinct cycles to the market. We call these secular periods. And these are long-term periods of time where the markets are either making money or not making money. 
100% of the net return of investing in stocks came from four secular periods. If you invested in any other period, you lost money on an inflation-adjusted basis over a 20-year period. We're currently in one of those secular market cycles now. From 2000 to 2013, we were in a secular bear market. Markets made no money. From 2009, following the financial crisis, that was kind of the bottom of the market. The market's been in the secular bull market since then, and, and we're about 14 years in the cycle. And these secular periods last, on average, 15 to 20 years. So there's potentially time left for this. But that's where we are right now. And the problem for individuals that are piling into a very overvalued, very extended market that's been driven by $43 trillion worth of interventions, the question becoming, can we continue to sustain that? Means that investors, retirees may be piling into stocks at potentially the wrong time if we do begin to enter the next secular period. And we will, right? These, these secular periods have been going, they, this is just part of life. It's like summer and winter. So we'll get to the next secular period at some point. Just don't know when or what's going to cause it or, you know, how, we're, how it's going to get there, what's going to, you know, invoke it. I mean, you know, in 1999, everybody thought that market was going on forever. Jim Cramer comes out in March of 2000 with his 10 stocks for the next decade because everybody thought that dot-com was it, right? Changed the whole global dynamic. Well, here we are again. AI. Again, it can go on for a while. I mean, we could be 1995 right now, you know, another five years of this kind of crazy bull market and you'll make a lot of money. That's awesome. But you have to understand that this cycle will end and you will enter the next secular period. And this just is just a function of what happens over time. And the important thing about this, again, as we've talked about, is that investors are now going to bank on the markets to generate the returns they need for retirement because they haven't saved enough. At a time where valuations are high, and, and the importance is, is that when valuations are high and falling, that's when you have those secular bear market periods. Can you show this chart, Brent? And when you go through those cycles, your returns are low. Now, what this chart shows you is Real, you know, total return valuations relative to forward returns in stocks. And right now we have a very high elevated rate of return on stocks, and that's fine because valuations are high. But once those valuations revert, you'll go through a 10-year period of near zero returns, which if you're banking now on your retirement and you've got a hundred thousand saved up and you're like, Hey, I want to retire. It's going to be very challenging. I get a lot of emails every day from people going, you know, Hey, I, I want you to manage my money. I'm 65 and I'm getting ready to retire and I've got less than a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I need to get ready for retirement. It's like, what do you want me to do for you? Right. It's just not possible. So this is this is the important part about you know where you are is to really take a hard look at at where you are and and having to make some tough financial decisions heading into retirement. And I thought it was interesting because 
you know, Gen Z, I, I, I love Gen Z. They have they come out with all these new things we talked about before, like quiet walking. I don't know if you've heard about this one. We talked about it on the show, which is where you go outside without your earbuds and you walk around and just enjoy nature. Yeah, it's called taking a walk, but, you know, we do, we, you know, Gen Xers did that a long time ago. We go outside and play until dark came on, right? <laughs> yeah, and boomers did that. Yeah, boomer. Yes, I said Gen X, didn't I? Boomers did it too. What toy did you play with? A stick, and I'm happy. <laughs> but now their new trend is called loud budgeting. And actually, I'm, I hope it sticks, right? You know, now, We've been through these kind of movements before with these these younger groups. Um, a few years back, it was the FIRE movement, was financial independence, retire early, which was to live really frugally, save a whole bunch of money, and retire early, right? And that worked great until the pandemic shut down and everybody lost their money. So, you know, you know these things work until they don't. But So Gen Z has now started a new trend on TikTok, called loud budgeting and this is where they speak up about saving money this is and i'll just read to you from axios this morning the new personal finance trend born on tiktok is a quick reversal from last year's social media fad of flaunting luxurious purchases loud budgeting encourages vocal encourages people to be vocal to their family and friends when something doesn't fit into your budget and not caving to peer pressure some people are even declaring their budget goals on social media posts and others are communicating their budget parameters offline with friends. Hey, I think it's great, right? Anything to get you to save some money, I think is awesome. But this is not new. <laughs> you know, boomers, Gen Z, I mean, you know, Gen X, you know, we were we, we grew up learning how to balance a checkbook and, you know, running a household budget. I mean, that's just, you know, part of it. But saving money is important. And again, you know, there's a lot, you know, previous generations had a big advantage is that they weren't inundated 24-7 by stuff to buy. You know, everything you pick up now, everything you turn on is, hey, buy this, buy this, you know, go to my TikTok shop, go to my, you know, go to my personal webpage, buy my merchandise. You know, everybody's got merch, right? You know? Everybody's got swag, right? And so just this constant push to spend your money on stuff, right? And and the, the question always comes down to the difference between what you want versus what you need. And we've developed this whole society on, on social media that I have to keep up with Brent. You know, Brent's Mr. Stylish over here, you know, dressing to the nines every day. So I got to dress up to meet him, right? I, you know, I've got to drive a nicer car because everybody on on social media apparently drives Bugattis and, and Ferraris, so I need a nicer car. And you know, most of it's not real, but there's this constant peer pressure to spend more money. When really, if and I hope this, like I said, I hope this trend sticks. It's not new, but you know creating some type of environment where people go, hey, you know, saving money is cool. I think that'd be great. If we could get more people to think saving money was cool, that'd be awesome. Now, the problem with that is, is that all these people, depending on their livelihoods now on social media, you know, is, you know, their digital marketing revenue. And how many social media posts you see now is like, hey, let me teach you how to be a digital marketer and you're going to make, you know, thousands of dollars every month. 
you know, if everybody starts saving money, that could be problematic for that business. Could be problematic for a company like Meta if people start saving money. But here's some of the numbers that came out of this uh, this trend. 69% of Americans said they have financial regrets from 2023. This was according to a survey of 2,098 adults by the Harris Poll. 53% of Americans said their financial situation worsened last year because they binge spent. In other words, after being locked down in the economy for a couple of years, Everybody was talking about, oh, there's going to be all this revenge spending. So everybody thought, well, I heard there's supposed to be revenge spending, so I need to go revenge spend. <laughs> and it just kind of it, it was kind of a self-made psychosis that everybody had to go out of, of the pandemic where they actually had saved some money and go spend it all. Because, well, we have to we have to do what everybody else is doing, right? It's, it's, it's like sheep. And now they're in a worse position than they were before. 31% said they regretted not saving money. 22% regretted overspending. It was interesting because this is me. <laughs> Comedian Lucas Battle introduced loud, bud loud budgeting in late December in a video that is viewed more than 1.5 million times. He says, if you know, and this is what I said, this, this part is me. If you know any rich people, you know that they hate spending money. That's so me. I hate spending money. And, you know, my wife was, was looking at me yesterday because I got dressed to go to lunch. She goes, she goes, Lance, I'm going to have to go into your closet and throw away half the stuff you own because it's out of date. And I go, don't touch my clothes. My goal is to wear it until it comes back into style. <laughs> I have to. I have. I still have ties. I have a whole rack of ties. Nobody wears ties, but they're coming back. <laughs> ties are gonna come back. Just wait. They're gonna be cool. Again. Anyway, wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. That article on retirement spending on the website now. Um, got a, a really interesting article to talk with you about tomorrow as well on the markets. Five thousand markets set to hit five thousand. What happens next? We'll talk about that in the morning on the next edition of the Real Investment Show. Have a great day.